0: Ministry professor. I'm also. I got a, I got a promotion not too long ago. I'm your. Hang on to this. Vice president of institutional research and effectiveness. We. Yeah. I. I actually. Nobody really knows. Nobody really knows what that means. And I kind of like it that way. Um. Because then I can do what I want. I, but I'll be honest. I when I was when I was seven or eight years old. When I was seven or eight years old. I. Um, did not think I'd be a children's minister slash vice president of institutional research and effectiveness, right? In fact, I'm kind of wondering, for those of you who are out there, what did you want to be when you were like, I don't know, seven years old, eight years old? What did you want to be when you were seven or eight years old? Anybody, shout it out. Okay, I got none of that. All right. I'm thinking, I'm thinking, anybody want to be an NBA star? Any NBA stars out there? Um, rock star, pop star? No? I'm, I'm a little disappointed in some of your like ambitions. When, when I was in the second grade, Mrs. DeYoung gave us this piece of paper. And on the piece of paper, it was like the blank part at the top and then it had a bunch of lines underneath. You know what I'm talking about? Where you drew the picture and then you wrote underneath what you wanted to be. And basically, it was to describe the picture that was indistinguishable above it. And so... I drew a picture of a woman standing behind a podium, not like this one, um, and below it I wrote these words, I want to be the first female president of the United States of America. Now, I know some of you are wishing you could vote for me. But instead, I guess probably Vice President of Institutional Research and Effectiveness is probably about as high as I'm going to go. It does not come with a cool plane. It does not come with a cool house. But I think the job is pretty good. So that's what I aspired to be um, now. But not then. And at some point in your life, you probably aspire to be something... Great. Maybe an NBA star, and then you stopped growing at five foot six inches tall and realize that's not going to happen. Or maybe you thought you'd be a rock star, a pop star, and then your music teacher told you that you're both tone deaf and have no rhythm, which is also a problem. Or you wanted to, maybe you wanted to be a medical doctor, you wanted to heal people, and then you fainted at the sight of your own blood. That's a problem. You're not going to be those things. And at some point in time, you had to grow up. Somebody looked at you and said, Okay, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? What are you going to be? Where are you going to go to school? And so you started thinking about vocations. And somehow you ended up here. Maybe you had a call. It was a Christ and Youth conference. It was a week of camp. Maybe a pastor, a minister, somebody came alongside you and said, You know what? You should be in ministry or you should go to Ozark. Some of you are following in your parents' footsteps. And I know this because I was in school with some of your parents. I'm that old. Um, And every time I see more and more students of parents I was in school with. And some of you are here because your parents forced you to be. (laughs) They said, just try it one year. And so you're here. And now it's the third week of school. It's the third week of school. And for you freshmen, you're thinking, what have I done? Because there's a lot of homework. There's a lot of reading. There's a lot of writing. I thought this would be fun. And, I mean, it is. But, wow, you looked at that syllabus the first day and thought, what in the world? Is this really what God's will is for my life? And some of you are seniors. And you're thinking, what is God's will for my life? People... So what are you going to do after you graduate? And you're like, I have no idea. I'm waiting for God's call. And some of you are sophomores or juniors, and you're thinking, I still have no idea what God's will is for my life. I'm really hoping he tells me before I graduate. And we're all a bit caught in the middle of wondering, what is God's will for our lives? Because we're not like this young man. A couple of years ago, there was a young man named, I'm going to botch the first name, Muchengetwa. I'm not even close. Muchangetwa Boni. His picture should show up here on the screen. Getwa Boni. There it is. And uh, he was a young man from Zimbabwe. He had become a Christ follower. He felt this call to preach, but he had a good job back in Zimbabwe. And so he was working that job. And one night, he had a dream. And in his dream, he tells this story. He says, in this dream, I dreamt that this woman handed me a piece of paper and said, why are you not following your call to preach? And it said on it, she said to him, apply to this college, you will be accepted. And he unravels this piece of paper in his dream. And it says, Ozark Christian College on it. He'd never seen the words before. So the next morning he goes to work, he Googles Ozark Christian College, he applies, he comes to school, and he graduates. And maybe you've heard that story before, and some of you are thinking, where is my call like that? Where is the GPS map that's going to drop down into the sky and tell me what am I supposed to do next? you're wondering where is that map because you know God's got a specific plan for you because you've got 46 graduation invitations or announcements rather that said the following words. Um, I know the plans I have for you, Jeremiah 29, 11. <laughs> and then one day you're sitting in principles of interp class with DeFazio or Welch or one of those guys and you find out that Jeremiah 29, 11 is not for you. <laughs> It was written to people in Babylonian captivity, and Joplin might be a little bit, you know, not so great, but it's not Babylon, and you're not Jewish, right? And so it wasn't meant for you, and so you're thinking, what is going on? What am I supposed to do? And you might be like I was, when I was getting ready to graduate from here, I sat in my room in Dennis 212, and I thought, God, what is it that you want me to do? I'll do anything, I'll go anywhere, just tell me what you want me to do. Just tell me what you want me to do. And you're sitting here today and you have no idea what God's will is for your life. So you do what you know to do. You pray. You seek out wisely counsel. You show up at Bob Witty's office and ask him if there's some kind of assessment that will tell you exactly what you're supposed to do with your life because you know. <laughs> you're welcome. So you decide. Okay, I got to decide. Choose right or choose left. Door 1 or door 2. I've got to make a decision because I cannot make a living watching Netflix the rest of my life. And so worry begins to set in. What if I make the wrong decision? Or worse yet, what if I already what if I've already made the wrong decision? It was the spring semester of my senior year here at Ozark. And um, I was fortunate enough to have two options. Um, I had sent out a bunch of resumes and I got a bunch of rejection. But I had two options. One was to be the junior high girls intern at a large church. The second was to be a children's and worship minister at a church of about 300. And I honestly didn't feel prepared for either. I honestly didn't feel a strong direction in one way or the other. I didn't feel like God was telling me, this is what you're supposed to do with your life. So I was pragmatic. I chose the church of 300 because if I did the internship, I was going to have to look for a job again in a year, and I didn't want to do that. So I took the job. And the first couple of years were pretty good. I mean, there were bumps along the way. I learned a lot. I made a lot of mistakes. Um, and yeah, that's the picture of the sanctuary of the church I Chose um, every Wednesday night, I'd gather the adult choir up in the choir loft, and well, they made me cry because I was pretty sure they didn't like me, this 22-something-year-old girl out of Missouri, and with an older choir. But but things were good. I was growing. I learned that I was pretty good at teaching kids the Bible. I, we were transitioning from uh, very traditional worship to more contemporary worship, and things were going well until one night. The elders called me into a meeting, and they said to me the following. We asked the youth minister to resign. He refused. So we fired him. And I knew that something might happen, but I didn't expect that. And then what happened after that, um, the details have left me, but the emotion never will. Because for the weeks to come... There were lots of secret meetings, a lot of letters, a lot of phone calls, a lot of negative conversations. And at that particular church, one of the rules was that if a group of people wanted to bring something to a vote, it could happen. And so a group of people got together and they wanted to hire the youth minister back. And in exchange, they wanted the senior minister and me gone. And so on a Sunday morning, April 13th, 1997, I sat in the front row of that sanctuary as about 400 people walked by me with a piece of paper in their hand. If it said yes, they wanted to keep me. If it said no, they wanted to get rid of me. And they came up and they handed it in. And then all of the pieces of paper were read aloud. Yes. No. Yes. No. About 400 votes cast... The nose won by 13. I was out of a job. And I can tell you that I was incredibly afraid. I was afraid that maybe I had made the wrong choice. Maybe I should have done that internship, because then I wouldn't be sitting here. Maybe I shouldn't have gone to Ozark in the first place. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, I was wrong. I didn't hear a call from God at a CIY in Adrian, Michigan. Maybe I should have been a math teacher just like my dad. And I was afraid. And I learned very clearly in the days and the months that stretched out before me that fear can get in the way of seeing how God can and will use you. God doesn't want you to fear, just as we sang, that you haven't figured out his perfect plan for your life. Because his plan for your life doesn't involve fear. It involves love. And if you're looking for a scripture instead of Jeremiah 29, 11, that will point you in the direction of what God's will is for your life, here it is. In the day of Jesus, the Pharisees and the Sadducees spent a lot of time discussing the law. There were 613 laws that they had to follow. And you thought our student handbook had a lot of laws in it. 613, 248 were positive things that they were to do, 365 were negative, and we know some of them because they give Jesus a hard time. They judge Jesus about healing on the Sabbath, eating with tax collectors and sinners, asking him why he did not fast, questioning the disciples, why don't you wash your hands before you eat? Okay, I got to go with the Pharisees on that one. Why don't you wash your hands before you eat? You should wash your hands before you eat. But they wanted to do it out of religious convictions, not out of sanitary ones. And so they tested him. They asked him, Show us a sign. They tried to tempt, or trap him with their questions, with their hypothetical situations, because they knew all 613 laws, and they had weighed them. These are heavier, these are lighter, they're all to be followed. But here's what's heavier and lighter. And they were afraid, afraid of God's judgment, afraid of picking the wrong law, and maybe afraid of this teacher who stood in front of them, challenging them to reconsider everything. And so we come to our text, Matthew chapter 22. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, that refers to the situation right before this, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Now remember, the Pharisees are already suspicious that Jesus came to abolish the law. And so they ask him, teacher, which is the greatest commandment? They asked him, which is the heaviest commandment? Hoping he'd reveal something to them about what he really believed and maybe something they could get him in trouble for. And so this is what Jesus says. He replies, love. The Lord your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The Pharisees would have immediately recognized these words. These are the words of the Shema. They repeated them twice a day. They came off their lips twice a day. They were written on their doorposts. They put them in scrolls and put them on their foreheads. They knew these words. But why weren't they busy practicing them? They had practiced other laws tassels on clothing, washing cups and bowls, honoring the Sabbath. But notice, their love for God is one-dimensional. It was practiced externally. Follow the law, rather than the words that they should have been repeating twice a day. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your inmost being, your soul, your passion, your vitality, your mind. All of your thinking, all of your planning is to be focused on God. It was a multi-dimensional love that God was asking for. Jesus continued in verse thirty-nine, and the second is like it: love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The second commandment comes to us from Leviticus chapter nineteen, verse eighteen. It comes kind of at the conclusion of a summary of the laws that we find in the end of the of the Ten Commandments, rather. Those six rules at the end: do not murder, do not commit adultery, and then this: love your neighbor as yourself. And then the list after it is kind of laws about protecting of the self. And so the second command mirrors the first. In the way that the love of God was to be multidimensional, the love of neighbor was to be multidirectional. In the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, just a few chapters before this, we have Matthew chapter 5. And Jesus there explains what the love of neighbor is supposed to look like. That it is a love beyond loving those who think like us and look like us and act like us, or even just like us. (laughs) He says this, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Uh, Chad Ragsdale retweeted this the other day. It said this, Jesus thinks there are two types of people in the world, our neighbors whom we are to love and our enemies whom we are to love. When Jesus introduces this second command, he isn't saying it's in second place, but instead that these two commands are part of one inseparable whole. Love your neighbor as yourself is the practical application and natural expression of the first And with one word, the word love, Jesus raises up the conversation above being about competing commands. Above all of that noise and instead says, all of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The priority of love is the command doesn't make the others optional instead love provides the context by which we understand all other laws all other commands all other rules just look at what it says in the gospels we have john 14:23 we keep the commands of christ because of love Ephesians 3 talks about how really we should look at everything through the lens of love. When we interpret a text, when we apply it, we look at it through how does this teach us to love God and love others. Uh, Colossians 4.16, when we have those difficult conversations, we need to do it with love. Seasoning our words with grace and salt. Ephesians 4.15, we confront one another but with love. Always through love. So that, John 13... All will know that we are followers of Christ if we love. What is the will of God for your life? Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. No matter your location or your occupation. Love of God and love of neighbor is your vocation. It is your calling. The problem, though, remains. Because many of us are trapped by fear. Fear of the unknown, fear of graduation, fear of syllabi, fear of making the wrong choice. And fear is an incredibly powerful motivator. But it only brings problems. Because first of all, fear places the attention on ourselves rather than on God. Fear drives us inward. We're worried about my choices, my decisions, my work, my calling, my future. But love... Drives out fear. Love directs us upward. Opening our eyes to God's work. God's ministry. God's glory. Not mine. Fear, it creates the barrier, doesn't it? Between ourselves and others. Fear creates a barrier between those that don't look like us. Don't act like us. Don't think like us. Don't talk like us. Don't believe like us. Sunday is the 15th anniversary of September 11th. You kids in here, you're not... Well, your kids. You grew up in a world that has only known fear. And the last couple of summers, the world just seems to explode with fear. Fear about the other, fear about people that we want to draw lines between us and themselves because of race, because of politics, because of opinions, whatever that is. But love removes those fences. It opens our eyes to the image of God found in every single person, regardless of race, regardless of political position, regardless of their opinions. They bear the image of God and we are called to love them. As the church I served for three years... Began, it split in two, is what happened. Fear drove me inward. I focused on myself, my choice, my ministry, my decisions. And fear created a barrier. I didn't want to love those people anymore. They turned their backs on me. They voted me out. They hurt me. But fortunately, I had a lot of good people alongside me. who helped me to turn my eyes upward. And the more I turned my eyes upward to love God with all my heart and my soul and my mind, it became easier to begin to love my neighbor as myself, to forgive them, and yes, to love them. The words of John the Apostle rang true. There is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out all that fear. The fear of making a wrong choice, the fear of the other. Paul recorded these words Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. And you thought this was only a wedding text, didn't you? (laughs) This is for the church. This is for you and for me. It does not dishonor others. Can I speak some truth in love? I've seen a lot of dishonoring of other people on Facebook and Twitter recently. It's not self seeking. It is not easily angered. Anybody need to hear that one? Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. It always protects even when you feel vulnerable. It always trusts even when you're afraid. It always hopes even when things look hopeless. It always perseveres even when you want to give up because love never fails. Love is never the wrong choice. It's never the wrong choice. And so if we can answer this call, this vocation of God in our lives to love God and love neighbor, it provides us a new perspective, a new pair of lenses by which we get to see God's will for our life. Nadine Collier became famous a little over a year ago for saying three simple words. Words that demonstrated that her love of God overflowed onto a neighbor. You see, there was a young white man who entered a church in Charleston, South Carolina. And he sat with a group of African Americans for about an hour. And at the end of that hour, as the people began to pray, he stood up, he pulled out a gun, and he shot and he killed nine of them, wounding another. He was caught soon after. And he was in court by a video conference and some of the family members were there to speak. And Nadine Collier had lost her mother. She was one of the ones killed that day. And she stood up and she said these three words to that kid. I forgive you. She continued, you hurt me. You hurt a lot of people. But if God forgives you, I forgive you. A young man came in filled with fear, filled with hate, And instead, he found love. Love from those that he did kill, love from those that were left behind. And that love, it doesn't come easy. It doesn't come naturally. It only comes with practice. The title for this message was one that was given to me. When they asked professors to preach um, in chapel, they sometimes give us a title and a text, and I appreciate the one they gave me, Practice the Good Commandment. How do you learn how to play scales on a piano, or play chord progressions on a guitar, or other kinds of instruments? You practice, right? How do you learn to shoot a free throw, kick a goal kick, um, serve a volleyball? I don't know what that is. I'm right-handed. Serve a volleyball. You practice. How do you master riding a bike? Driving a car, typing on a keyboard, you practice. And what we do when we practice is we build muscle memory until we aren't even thinking about the thing we're doing. We're just doing it so that you can do it without conscious effort. Practice the great commandment until love is just your muscle memory because this is our vocation. This is your call, not just at the beginning of your adulthood as you decide what you want to do with your life. It's the call of God every single day to practice, to rehearse the love of God and love of neighbor until we get to be with God in heaven. You're going to hear a thousand and one times here at Ozark Christian College the following statement from our former dean, Seth Wilson, who we teach you to love is more important than what we teach you to know, Yeah. Yeah, I know. But here's the thing. If you're wondering why you felt called, compelled, or conjoled to come to Ozark Christian College, it's because regardless of whether you think you're going to be a children's minister or a student minister or a preacher, a worship minister, a public school teacher, an accountant, a whatever you feel like God might be calling to you, we major here at Ozark Christian College in teaching one another how to love God and love neighbor. The will of God is not something that happens to you. The will of God is something you do. So love. It's time to go to practice. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you first loved us. And showed us how it is to love you and to love one another. Help us to see the ways that we can practice our vocation Even in the next minutes, the next hour, in the next day, in the next week. Help us to love like you love us. It's in your son's name and through the spirit that we pray. Amen.